Never before, Shannon, in the history of the North Avenue Lounge, have we had to pause production because of a garbage truck. But today we did. Right. And also, we had to pause it a long time ago for a pandemic. Here we are at the beginning of your second best of show. And we decided, or you decided, that a little reflection and a little bit of care was needed for the opening of this best of show. So tell me about theater in Atlanta. So we had originally recorded this intro all the way back in March 2020, like five minutes before the pandemic hit. When I went back and listened to the introduction, it just felt really flat because it it no longer means the same thing to think about theater after all that we've lived through in the last year. And I've been thinking about it a lot because, you know, theater has been a thing that's been hit the hardest. It was one of the first things that closed down. And I think it's going to take us a long time to rebuild. Theater has all these roots in uh, Greek language and culture and practice. The word itself means to behold, and it's steeped in the the ritual of beholding God. Actually, it was a place where people went to worship originally. And even the word amphitheater, which was where originally like folks went to have theater, means to see bidirectionally, which means I see you and you see me. And I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of all that we've lost in the last year. This place that was hit so hard is also the place that I think we have to fight the hardest to get back into. It just doesn't mean the same thing anymore for us to go and sit elbow to elbow with strangers in a quiet, dark place. One of the last things that I did before the pandemic was I went to see the musical adaptation of Once at the Horizon Theater. My friend Catherine took me, and she took me because she was helping to fuel my ongoing dream to go to Ireland. And it was such a joyful experience, and and I think that's just why we have to get back there as quickly and as safely as we possibly can. But I want us to encourage ourselves to get back to enjoying that familiar, uncomfortable intimacy with strangers and to dream our way back to where we can be. You know, I think there's so many people who are feeling that pull that you're talking about, you know, maybe different dark rooms, but definitely I think many people are feeling that pull. Absolutely. Okay. Well that did change since the pandemic, but, um, Mm -hmm. Definitely the the stuff we're going to play hasn't changed, right? Right. So I'm just going to play the intro that we already recorded. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Thanks. So we're going to hear from Kenny Leon and Daniel Deadweiler. Of True Colors Theater. A segment called The Navigator. What is that? That was an original site-specific show that Seven Stages did. That was actually my second episode ever. Wow. So are you going to sound like really bad at it? or <laughs> I might. I'll tell you one thing. My voice sounds a lot higher pitched. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Daniel and Rachel May. Uh, Daniel Thomas May is his professional name, uh, is a famous actor here in town. A lot of people know him because he was on The Walking Dead for a time. He also was in uh, The Christmas Carol at The High for many years. And then uh, Rachel May is the founding producing artistic director at Synchronicity Theater. Nice. And then we're going to finish with Michael Haverty and Suhaila Elatar from Seven Stages. Yeah, they they both also work independently, but they all are going to talk a little bit about having Seven Stages be their artistic home. All right. 
Let's get into Atlanta Theater Makers, a highlight reel from Shannon M. Turner. This is North Avenue Lounge. Uh, we're here today talking to Kenny Leon and Daniel Deadweiler to talk about um, all things True Colors and the upcoming show, Smart People. So we were just starting to get into True Colors, and I want to uh, find out more about that that founding and the mission. Um, what what was it like in the early days, getting that theater off the ground? <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't plan to do it. And it was sort of like, you know, Chris Manos challenged me to do it. And, and then I said, well, if I were going to do it, let me do it as an exercise. So Jane Bishop, who was the general manager at the Alliance Theater, I said, Jane, let me talk to you. And she was in retirement. And the great thing about that, I always felt that to that point, I felt like uh, most of the African-American theaters in this country had people who were passionate about plays, passionate about art, but they weren't passionate about the financial side. <laughs> so I said, if you're going to have a successful theater, the first thing I do is get someone who's as passionate about the money as I am about the work. And hence, Jane Bishop. And Jane, Jane said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it for four years. And I said, okay. And so we started working on it. But Jane like, gave me a lot of assignments. She says, first of all, you have to figure out the name. I was like, oh, we just, you know, she said, no, it's important. Name is important. So I started writing these names. I wrote like 200 names down. One was called Lion's Paw because my name, Leon, means lion. And it was a lot of the African-American African American National Theater. And, that's, and then a friend of mine, Pedro Harris, he said, you know, you always been about diversity. So it should be, have your name in it. And it should be like Kenny Leon's Truest Colors, you know, theater company. And I was like, I don't want something with my name on it and... But, you know, but I'll write that down. And I wrote that down. So of all these hundreds of names on this piece of paper, and, and, and I picked one, and Jane said, oh, that, that, that doesn't feel right. I picked another one. That doesn't feel right. So she said, let's just forget about that for, for a moment. And she says, we have to have core values. So think about what our core values should be. So we came up with these core values, boldness, laughter, respect, and abundance. And it's like, because we want a theater to be bold, and we want to have respect for respect for every culture and we want to laugh while we're doing it and we want abundance we don't want people to live in that area of scarcity we want people to feel like there's enough for everybody so we did that and then there was another question what do you promise the audience what do i promise the audience i said like, okay and i was sitting on the toilet with all these papers around me <laughs> and i said what do I promise the audience? I promise them to always be in the search of, uh, of truth and clarity. That's what I've always been about. So I wrote that down. And I wrote it right next to what Pedro had said at, at uh, Kenny Leon's Truest Colors Theater. And it's like truth and clarity, true colors. It's like, that's it. And I said, Jane, I was sitting there and she says, yeah, that's it. And that's literally how True Colors, the name, came in existence. And, you know, back then I was like, well, how do you start a company? And, you know, you, 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 you raise money, you need a board, you need a, a, a nonprofit status. And then Chris Manos, bless his heart, gave me $50,000 because I was saying, I want to go to New York. I don't know if I want to do that. I was just doing this as an exercise. He said, here's $50,000. I don't care if anyone ever knows that I gave you this because I want the company to be successful and I think you are the person to do this and the country needs it. And I took that $50,000 and we started 
True Colors, and I was always clear about my day job would be me doing movies and stuff away from Atlanta, and we would always come back and shine a light on Atlanta. And so that's sort of how we began. We had some rough periods, maybe like five years ago when we were like, because I didn't want the company ever to be in debt, and we were like maybe $100,000 in debt, so we came to a come to Jesus meeting, like, do we really want to be here? And when the first few years, people kept asking, well, Kenny Leon's not going to be here. He's not, he's going to leave. He's going to do it. And it's like, now, next year will be year 15. Hmm. Year 15. So, like, I think we answered that question whether I'm going to be here um, or not. So, uh, where was that? I got lost. Well, I was going to ask, did you feel enormous pressure in picking out that first season? How did you go about selecting the work? No, that was easy. I mean, and, and because the first play we did was August Wilson's Fences. And, and so I just picked up the phone and called August Wilson, who's the greatest American writer, won two Pulitzers. I said, August, we're starting this theater, man. Could you come and toast the, toast the company up? Yeah, man, I'll be there. He came here, toasted us with that production of Fences. In fact, uh, uh, Ryan Cameron, who was at V103, was in the show. He played Lions in that show. So it was, uh, so it was a great show. We had some New Yorkers in it. We had, and, and initially, the company was going to be in three cities. That was the big vision. And in fact, before we called it True Colors, before I came up with that name, we had a folder. Jane and I, were, we had the big idea was the name of the company. We just had the big idea. And we, never, we kept the big idea until we came up with True Colors. Did that feel like winning the lottery? having Mr. Wilson available to you for that? Always. And, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to direct three of his plays on Broadway and to, you know, you know, when he died in 2005, it was just really, it was hard, you know what I mean? And he's he's meant so much to many of us, you know, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Angela Bassett, Samuel L. Jackson, all these people in our early careers, we got opportunity to work because August wrote those plays. Uh, and he gave opportunities to directors as well. But and when he when he passed away, uh, right now our largest education program at True Colors is August Wilson Monologue Competition, and that started selfishly. Me and Todd Kreidler, who was August's assistant, we started. We said, "What are we going to do?" August is gone. We we're like, all we could do to keep him alive selfishly is we get these scripts, these ten plays that he wrote if we get them into the hands of our young people. And so we started with one school in Atlanta, Georgia, and now we're in 12 states. Um, we have regional competitions where these students go in and take any monologue from any, any of the 10 plays and compete against each other. And they, they, you know, they learn about articulation, diction, uh, character, history, uh, culture, all kind of things. And then we fly the finalists to New York. True Colors does this. We fly the... Tr- finalists to New York for, for the week of August Wilson's birthday where they meet people like Dan Ratcliffe or Denzel Washington and then they see plays like Hamilton or The Color Purple and Lynn manuel comes and talks with them and Jennifer Hudson takes selfies with them and then I do a, a, a workshop on career building and then they get on an August they get on a Broadway stage at the August Wilson Theater on Broadway and they compete against each other from all over the, all over the country so now it's sort of hard to imagine we started in one school. And so now you're also directing uh, Broadway shows for the TV. You've done The Wiz. Yeah, I was blessed to have, I did The Wiz live. And that's a hard thing to do because you have so many people. You have one generation of people who were introduced to The Wiz 
by Michael Jackson and Diana Ross. So you, you don't want to offend them. And then you have another group of people who was introduced by S- Stephanie Mills and, and Jeffrey Holder and the f- original Broadway show. And it was so difficult for that play even to make it to Broadway. And um, so, you know, we had to walk that line with that with that play because it's so iconic, you know, and it means something different for everyone. But I thought we were so successful with it and working with Mary J. Blige and Queen Latifah and uh, David Allen Greer is the funniest man on the planet. <laughs> and then to work with a young girl, Shanice Williams, who was 19 years old, who who the NBC let us discover her. And that was an important thing for me, like just to give someone else a shot who we don't know about. And because of the success of that, we were able to do, they hired me back to do Hairspray Live this year, which comes on December 7th. So December 7th, 8 o'clock, turn on your television. But, But it was important for me, again, to be allowed to discover an unknown person. So Tracy Turnblatt is an unknown 19-year-old girl from Texas. And it's great to see young people realize their dreams. So you put them and you're going to put her with Kristen Chenoweth and, 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 and Harvey Firestein and Martin Short uh, and Jennifer Hudson. You know what I mean? And we're still casting. But um, that's, it, it, that's exciting to me because I also feel like it's part of a revolution. It's like, how do you continue to make theater interesting for multi-generational households, you know, and watching something in real time together, and how do you encourage people to support live theater? And so I get a chance to do, to to help be, to do that. And so I've learned from the Wiz, I learned from watching, I saw what they did with Peter Pan, Sound of Music. I was just a third person, the third production to, to to ever happen. So then, oh, we had a little bit of success. And then Fox did Grease, and they did something a little different. They raised the bar a little bit. And so now with Hairspray, I'm like, okay, now I've watched all these things. How can I raise the bar? How can I encourage people to, to want to go to live theater? And how can I make grandmother sit down with Junior and do something together uh, like when I grew up, we used to watch Bonanza and Ed Sullivan all together. We would like eat dinner and everybody would watch it like all together. So that's selfishly, I would love to see generations get do something together because out of doing something together, they end up talking. Is the uh, Baltimore connection to Hairspray, is that just coincidence or does that have anything to do with why you wanted to do Hairspray? <laughs> I look at it this way. They hired me to do Hairspray probably because of the success of The Wiz. But when you hire me to do Hairspray, you also know what you're getting. So it's like my grandmother always says, take you wherever you go. So I can only be mean. So to me, it's a great, fun musical, but it's a great, fun musical that's about integration. Mm-hmm. It's about us getting along. That's what I was saying. And metaphorically, it's through dance. And if you just look at our world today and see where we are, there is a huge need for that story to be told in a fresh, new, exciting way. Now, how do I work that in subtly and all of that without, you know, hitting people over the head? You know, that's that's the challenge for me. I mean, it'll be the same story, but certainly me directing it will be different than, um, you know, uh, Dan Sullivan directing it or any other person. It's just, I, I got to bring who I am. So some things I just don't know. I only know how to look at a certain way. And I know that there's a lot of things that, that have been happening in Baltimore. There's police uh, and community communication or non-communication happening. 
there's young people that are losing their lives in our country. Uh, there is gun violence. There is, you know, and this is a beautiful music that says, you know, let's just let's get along. Let's just dance. Let's get along. So it's all there. So I haven't figured out all how I'm going to do it. We do know that we're going to shoot it in California, California, which is different than what we I did the Wiz in New York at Grumman Studios. But we'll do hairspray on the Universal lot. So I have. I'll have opportunity working with uh, Alex uh, Rosinski, who is a great, great TV director. He did uh, he did Grease, so we're working together on this, and it should be very challenging and exciting. And so I'll have four or five exterior uh, shots, and I'll have you know ten or twelve different locations, uh, internal locations. You are listening to a selection of best of segments from Shannon M. Turner on the North Avenue Lounge. Today we're talking to Rachel May and Daniel Thomas May, who are married and a great creative couple, creative forces in the Atlanta art scene. Rachel is the producing artistic director at Synchronicity, and Daniel is a well-known actor all throughout town. So Rachel, in our previous segment, we were talking about all of the shows that um, Synchronicity uh, does, including the family series. And in your new space... You have uh, a show called Lyle the Crocodile? We do. It's fantastic. It just opened on Friday, and it's a musical version of the books, The House at 88th Street and Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile, and it's, uh, which were written in the early 60s and have been just delighting people for generations. And it's the story of the Prims who discover a crocodile in their bathtub. And hilarity ensues. And it's really fun. It's kind of this New York-style musical with um, with a big cast, and it's really fun and clever. There's lots of good jokes for the adults and lots of fun for the kids. And, uh, Daniel, you liked it, didn't you? You had a good time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Matt, the guy playing uh, Lyles. Oh, my gosh, so Matt Baum. He is unbelievable. And he doesn't speak during the show, uh, and all he does are tricks. And he's kind of a really fantastic sort of Harpo Marx sort of actor and uh he's just utterly delightful as are all the other actors in the show so it's really fun and it runs all the way through december 28th and we've got about eight shows a week um and actually really really cool thing going back to our community engagement uh on wednesday we're actually taking the actors to um children's health care of atlanta at scottish right and they'll be doing about a 45-minute sort of concert version of the show for the kids who can come down to this area they call The Zone. And they also have a closed caption, um, a closed system television. So they will also film it, and all the kids who are too sick to come down who are in their beds, they can watch it from their beds. So we'll be performing for all the kids at Scottish, right? So we're excited to do that. When I was doing my pre-research for the show, when... Um sending out stuff on Facebook and Twitter, I noticed that both you and Daniel for your Facebook icons have um, something about Georgia Shakespeare mm-hmm. as your as your images. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the closing of Georgia Shakespeare and what that means because you, I think that Georgia Shakespeare, particularly for you, Daniel, is a, is a part of your story and, and your, um, you know, theater work. Um, but you, Rachel, as a leader of the arts community mm-hmm. and a theater director, I think that that, that story and, and what it means for the ecology of art making is really important. Can you guys speak to that? Uh, yeah, uh, it's a, a very sad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, a longtime artistic associate at Georgia Shakespeare, uh, performed with them for, uh, for many, many years. 
And it's really heartbreaking. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's really heartbreaking that um, that this should happen. Uh, in it seems to me like it's not the kind of thing that should happen in uh, a city of this size, uh, a, a metropolitan city. Uh, there's just not the kind of um, support for the arts that there should be in Atlanta. And um, Georgia Shakes was one of the companies that that needed a little bit more. Um, Atlanta, the city, you know, Atlanta's made progress, but over overall, compared to most states in the nation, actually, um, Georgia ranks pretty low. I think we're forty eighth per capita giving to the arts. Yeah, in so, this state, um, the arts is an, an important part of of our lives and our culture, and it's it's not just the uh, the ways in which art can be commodified. Mm-hmm. which is, of course, important and drives a large portion of the economy now. Um, but what uh, not-for-profit theaters bring to um, to their communities, the ways in which they serve, and um, the not, not just um, serving immediate needs, but even the kind of esoteric uh, artistic needs, um, uh, reaching people's hearts and minds. Yeah, and it's uh, it, as important. you say, it's not just about do you go to see Shakespeare or do you like Shakespeare. It's actually, I mean, for certain people who love to go to Shakespeare, it's about that. But it's it's also about what kind of city are we trying to be. And there have been a couple studies recently that have really disturbing news, which is that they were looking at um, which cities are millennials choosing to move to. And Atlanta is falling down on that list. It's it's dropping lower and lower. We're dropping below cities like Dallas and Austin and other cities where there is a public commitment to the arts. And um, and you know, I was at a forum a couple of weeks ago with the Fulton County Arts Commissioners talking about arts and arts support. And I will say, Fulton County and the city of Atlanta both have been excellent, excellent supporters. Um, of the arts community, but they can only do so much. And um, at the state level, we're not doing very well. And uh, there are some real issues with that. And there was a, um, you know, they they tried to pass the percentage sales tax for arts, which in a lot of cities is what provides a bedrock of support for arts organizations that they can count on. So they're not always in danger. Um, and it didn't go through in the 11th hour. And so I think that uh, there's a lot of lip service to wanting to be a world-class city and to attract the, you know, the hottest businesses and, and the best people to come here. But if we don't really invest in the infrastructure and the creative capital that the city should have, we're, we're not going to reach that status. So, um, you know, as an arts leader, it's uh, concerning. It's concerning about... Um, we've already seen a couple of funders who have been worried about funding us because uh, they're worried that they don't know, you know, because Theater in the Square closed a couple of years ago and now Georgia Shakespeare, both huge losses. And now funders are worried, what if we give you a grant and then you close? How do we know? How do we know that you're solid? So we're all going to have to work harder, which is fine because, you know, we can provide the information, but um, it just... It, we shouldn't be at risk in that way. Georgia Shakespeare should never have closed. It is very sad. Mm-hmm. Thank you for speaking to that. Yeah. I want to make sure that the Walking Dead fans out there have gotten all that they can. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to mention that you recently were on an episode of a podcast called Walker Stalkers. 
Oh, yeah. Actually, earlier this year was the last time I actually had a chance to do uh, the podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, James and Eric uh, are the two guys who created the Walker Stalkers podcast. Uh, it started out, uh, it had very humble beginnings, just talking about uh, uh, each show as it would air. They would do a kind of a follow-up review and talk about the things that they liked and disliked. And uh, it's really grown. They're, they're really savvy, these two. And... Um, so now they are actually have created um, a whole series of cons of conventions uh, centered around um, zombie culture. Uh, it's called the Walker Stalker Con. And uh, the very first one was a year ago uh, here in Atlanta. They did their inaugural one here in Atlanta. Um, and they've done, I think, I think it was three more after that. Aren't you going to one it soon, was, too? Yeah, I've got, actually, I'm, we're going to do one in uh, New York, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, at the Meadowlands Convention Center in New Jersey. Uh, we're doing one in December, and then there's another one uh, in San Francisco following that early next year, and then Chicago. And the, they're, they're all over the place. Um, so th- they've done an amazing job, and I'm excited to be affiliated with them and to, to be able to call them friends, that they uh, they have found a way to... Um, channel the enthusiasm <laughs> for this television show because it's huge and it's got uh, it's got an amazing following, um, but there there really haven't been any cons that have specifically catered to that, and that's precisely what they're shaping um, and have met great success in. And so. the cons are this whole new life that came out of Walking Dead for Daniel. He was in Germany last year for a con and he's, mm-hmm. he yeah. just goes all over the place and meets fans. It's fun. That's great. I love it. I lo- That's one of the things that I love the most. That's one of the things that I've loved about. I wasn't really big into uh, Twitter prior to my work on The Walking Dead and I took that opportunity to um, get to start building a following and, and use it as a means of communicating with fans and uh, it's one of my favorite parts about doing any con is actually being able to meet people face to face. So if you're not pouring through North Avenue lounge archives, then check out the Walker stalkers podcast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, unfortunately speaking of stalking, January is uh, stalking awareness month. That's right. And, uh, we want to give you guys a few minutes to talk about why that's important for you. Yeah. Um, well it was this January of this year, that I decided to um, to make public on Twitter again through my my social media following and and uh, start talking about the fact that uh, that Rachel and I have had a stalker um, and it's actually something that's still in process and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it. I don't do that on on Twitter either. Just uh, the the main the primary focus the the thing that I want to make sure and communicate is that people are thoughtful of and aware of um, the risks that we take in social media and how, how we can uh, ex- what we can expose ourselves to um, <clears throat> we're seeing a lot of that I believe I, I believe this is going to be a, a 21st century civil rights issue uh, to be perfectly honest um, there was just a story on NPR this morning about a case that's going to the Supreme Court that has to do with a guy who is basically at least to, from my point of view and as a victim of stalking, this is exactly what the case is, is trying to establish. But yeah, cyber stalking mm-hmm. in particular, you know, but he's been terrorizing his ex-wife through Facebook and social media. And mm-hmm. of course, he's claiming uh, the right to free speech. And that's I 
that's not the way that I feel about it. <laughs> um, having been on the other side of it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and the things like, uh, I think we, you and I, uh, Shannon, we talked a little bit about, um, Gamergate, which I didn't, it didn't sound like something that you had looked into a whole lot, but there's been some really interesting things just in the past year, the whole Gamergate, Gamergate thing where people seem to think that they have free reign to actually make, uh, threats against people's lives and safety, um, I know in the in the the Gamergate instance, several female journalists had to to leave their homes. They had to they felt like they could not be safe where they lived. The whole practice of doxing and and all that kind of stuff it's uh, it's interesting when it's kind of exciting and you know the the uh, the group Anonymous is using it to out KKK members who are threatening to do terrible things in Ferguson's like well you kind of think maybe that's uh, maybe that's okay but then when the tables are turned. And someone wants to do the same thing to you, then um, it's it's really not cool. And other, boy, is it not fun. It's not fun. <laughs> and it's no joke. And, um, you know, and I would just say the other sort of pub- public service announcement that I would say about it that we didn't really know when this thing started. And we're now two years into this process yeah. with this experience. Um, is that our lives online are much more public than we think they are unless we take very, very strict efforts to change that. Um, Facebook is a really great example. If you just click like everything's private, it's not. You have to go through about seven different levels to do that. So I would just encourage people, especially parents who might post pictures of their kids or information about where their kids go to school and that sort of thing to really be thoughtful about that because we found out that things were much more public than we knew. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, persistent and we're pretty savvy the internet remembers savvy. internet they people say, the internet so remembers. you know like we so. we thought it was pretty locked down and it wasn't yeah. so to the extent that you put yourself out there you know think twice <laughs> yeah. about that mm-hmm. that uh naked selfie you know that's all i'm saying <laughs> live your no life live your life have that's fun. what we have to say <laughs> i love the internet i'm not down on the internet no, but internet. just uh Big you know think yeah. twice in fact, can we say our websites? Please do. Could I we? was about to do that. Aha, I jumped on you. <laughs> no, let's Sorry. go for it. Uh, so Synchronicity Business, you can find out all about what we've got going on at www.synchrotheater.com, which is S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.com. And the best way to uh, get in touch with me and find out what's happening in my career is uh, really through Twitter. I am DT May, at I am DT May. That's my Twitter and Instagram Got a Facebook page, just facebook.com slash Daniel Thomas May. My website is Daniel Thomas May. <laughs> pretty easy. Thank you both for talking about that. I know it's a pretty sensitive issue and um, it's hard when something is invading your privacy to come forward and say, this is happening to me. Um, and I appreciate you doing it um, in, um, in service to others uh, to help them um, and prevent things uh, like that happening Absolutely. to them and their yeah, children that was in the, the thing that really decided that I, when I finally th- there's an interesting thing and I want to say this last bit about it um, for anyone who is experiencing that uh, if you think if you believe yourself to be the victim of, of cyber stalking or stalking in general there's a very strange um, phenomenon that occurs where you feel like it's maybe not safe to talk about it mm-hmm. or embarrassing, embarrassing to yeah. talk about mm-hmm. it um the first response that any anyone's you know will will try and offer a joke is oh wow a stalker hey you know that's wow you've arrived you made it <laughs> you know that and it's like no this isn't really, this isn't a this isn't a funny haha stalker mm-hmm. um so that that was that was in part what led me to to make that decision in January when it was stalking awareness month to go ahead and say 
you know, I want to I want to let people know that this happens. I want to be able to talk about it. We have to be able to talk about it to bring it into the light and not just shove it into a corner somewhere. This is Ira Glass of This American Life, and you're listening to WREK Atlanta. Music you don't hear on the radio, on the radio. Hi, this is the North Avenue Lounge. I'm Shannon M. Turner, and today we're listening to a collection of some of my best episodes. The thing that brings us together today, other than Mowage, is um, to talk especially about Inside Eye, the show that uh, Michael's been developing for quite some time and has uh, just opened this weekend at Seven Stages. This show is extremely exciting. I got to see the preview uh, on Thursday night and um, I can't say the way I want to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Follow the rules, Shannon. Um, You can go and see the show if you'd like to. (laughs) (laughs) If I were you, (laughs) I would think about going. Uh, It's really interesting. It's multimedia. There's uh, puppets, as you would expect from a Michael Haverty show. There uh, are videos, and uh, the actors interact with all of that. Um, you had to develop new technology for the show. Yes. What? I learned a lot Yeah, <laughs> in the last three years. So how was the show born? The show was born by meeting my main collaborator on the show. His name's Erwin Maas, and he's a Dutch director who lives in New York. And we met three years ago, and um, a very good friend of ours who runs a theater in New York said, you guys should make a show. And we were both sort of starstruck at the moment that she had said something like that. So we were like, okay. And um, <laughs> we just uh, we went, we were in Boston for a conference, and we went for a long walk in the park. And uh, both discovered that we were very interested in the autistic spectrum. Uh, and so we actually uh, originally uh, read this book called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime and thought this would make a great play and called the publisher's agent who said that they had just sold the rights uh, to a theater in the West End and now it's a blockbuster on Broadway. So we just missed the boat on that one. But after we came to the dead end, we were like, you know what? We are still fascinated by this, by the spectrum and let's just write our own show. Was that a surprise that you'd... You were asking at the tail end of a sale? I mean, does that happen a lot, that kind of coincidence? That's never or? happened with me before, but I've done a lot of adaptations, so I'm used to dealing with estates, and it it wasn't totally surprising. It was disappointing, but it was uh, it didn't dampen our enthusiasm to keep making something, because really it was, it was the collaboration that was first um, before we came upon that book. So then from there, we started doing research. Uh, We hooked up with multiple organizations, Mount Sinai Hospital, Columbia Presbyterian in in New York. We hooked up with a fantastic place called the Rebecca School, which is in New York. It's a school for um, young people on the autistic spectrum. Uh, We also hooked up with the Marcus Autism Center here at Emory and multiple individuals, both on the spectrum and their families, their siblings, therapists, neuroscientists, MRI technicians. It was super exciting. And um, so over about a two-year process, two-and-a-half-year process, we gathered as much information on the spectrum, tried to really understand it both from a scientific point of view, a psychological point of view, therapeutic, 
uh, and then just personal, what it what it's like for the family members, for the siblings, for friends, um, for people who don't even know them, who go to school with people on the spectrum. Tried to gain just an overall understanding of what it's like. And from there, decided to build a show where an audience, as much as you can, could step inside the shoes of someone on the spectrum and see the world as they see it. Um, which is a challenging thing because there's a saying, if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. It is so vastly different for everyone who's on the spectrum. Um, but there are certain indicators that, that you find over and over again. And so we had to place our main character on the spectrum somewhere. But we try to make a big point in the program notes and pre-show saying, you know, this is just one person. Um, and the way we were able to get people inside is through this technology where we have wireless um, cameras, live feed cameras, implanted in the heads of our Bunraku-style puppets. Uh, and so you can I'm see. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. What style puppet? Bunraku is a. It's a Japanese style. It's like a. It's a very lifelike figure who's about two feet tall, and it's operated directly by the puppeteers. There's no rods. There's no strings. They're holding onto the edges of the puppets' appendages. Like um, a doll. Like a doll. It's like, like a, doll. a big doll, and you're you're uh, you're just grabbing onto it. There's no rods or anything. Mm -hmm. So we carved out the inside of the heads and have a place where you can. In plant this camera and it's all wireless so there's no cables or anything and then um, we have multiple monitors that move around the stage we have projection screens and surfaces and we're able to show what it looks like from the puppet's point of view which is really cool on its own um, but added to that we developed a software with a fantastic video designer um, that mimics some of the sensory triggers and effects when you're on the spectrum and you're overloaded or underloaded um, by sensory input Yes. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary to watch, <laughs> I have to say. And um, I, we, I don't want to give away too much in the show because uh, I, I was, uh, when I was talking to Michael beforehand, I was like, there's just so many surprises that mm. are beautiful theatrical moments that you wouldn't want to know are coming. Uh, but I also want to say enough that people will, will be intrigued. Uh, so there's this uh, beautiful, almost ritualistic time that happens as the puppet grows up, mm -hmm. uh, where it's almost uh, something between a birth and a surgery mm -hmm. as the, the camera gets transitioned. Will you describe that more and how you made that choice artistically? Yeah. Well, we decided like midway through that we wanted to expose all the technology, that we didn't want to hide the fact that we're using a camera. Uh, and a lot of that springs just from the basic idea of puppetry, which is that, yeah, you're holding this, this thing out there that's obviously not real. It's obviously been made by someone, but and the puppeteers are right there manipulating it. They're not hiding. And so it invites the imagination to go to work on the part of the audience. Um, and so by exposing the tech, we have the, the person running all the tech is on stage. Um, and so you can see them running the show. And that's actually the table where we switch out the puppets. As he gets older, there's a different puppet for the, the character as he goes from being a, a six-month-year-old to an eight-year-old to a 13-year-old to a 17-year-old. And so each time we have to put the camera into the new puppet and we just expose that in this, like you said, a very ritualistic, almost medical looking way. Um, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. So as someone who has no perspective on the actual performance, I did not see it. But uh, the, a choice like that, how far along in this process that you were talking about do you start thinking this is how we're going to do it? Because when you say we're, we're going to do a show, we're interested in autism – it's like, well, how do you, 
how do you follow a path to a show and what's the given when it comes to saying we're going to do a show? <laughs> this know? goes along the five-year plan question, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm stuck in this. I, man, like decisions were made along the way. Everything was always loose. A lot of things changed and in rehearsal. You know, we had three weeks rehearsal after a two and a half year process. So, man, it's just very delicately walked, especially when you're dealing with a disorder that affects millions of people across the globe. You know, we, we our biggest challenge was to stay true to the science and to those people to make sure we were not misrepresenting them or painting them in some way that was unfair or untrue. Um, and maybe that had something to do with that specific decision as well, is just being totally open about everything that we're doing. Um, I mean, even down to the actor being chosen to play the role, making sure they were not falling into a caricature of a person on the spectrum in the way that they were speaking. That was actually a big reason why we decided to do puppetry, because at the very beginning, we weren't even sure we were going to do a puppet show. Um, but then we we felt an uncomfortability with casting a neurotypical person in an autistic role to play live. But with a puppet, we felt like it was different. Okay. Um, and we were eventually able to assuage some of those feelings. We have a short 15-minute piece that uh, that happens right before our show, which uh, is written, directed, and performed by uh, a young man on the autistic spectrum. So you get to see his show. You get to meet someone on the spectrum and see them talk about their life right before you see our fictionalized story about a young man on the spectrum. So first you get two different views. You get to see two different people on two different wavelengths of the spectrum. But then also it just felt so weird to be doing a show about autism without a person on the spectrum on the stage. But um, it was important for us from the very beginning. There's a lot of work being done nowadays uh, for autistic individuals sensory friendly shows where they're you know bringing up the house lights dimming the sound making sure there's no strobe lights or anything like that but there's very little work being done that is for a neurotypical audience to teach them what it's like and it was so important for us to you know it's one in 68 kids in the u.s are born on the spectrum now and they are people on the spectrum are in every facet of our life and if we don't become aware of what they're going through you know the sort of challenges they face then we can't take that half step towards them to breach that communication gap, which is one of the major effects of autism is an inability to communicate um, or a difficulty in communicating. And so I believe very much that, that we should all learn as much as possible about it so that when we meet someone on the street or in our home or uh, at work who's on the spectrum, we get a, a sense of what's going on and we can adjust what the way we act in order to communicate. So it's not just all on people on the spectrum to change the way that they act, you know. I have a question, if I if sure. I may. Um, during your research and any of the experiences or speaking to any of the people, did you at any time consider yourself on the spectrum? <laughs> or any of the people that you are friends with where you go, oh, this might explain? <laughs> I certainly felt a little bit on the spectrum after three weeks of rehearsing the show <laughs> just because so much of it is living in that world um and i don't mean to suggest that not you at are, all but what i'm saying is, is that when you're doing research just even when you're like oh i have the sniffles and you jump on the online and you start looking up and you're like oh i have cancer you know because you found all the yeah, things that yeah. would support it was there any moment when you were like looking at the checklist and going quote unquote checklist that you were you had a inkling mm-hmm. not for me i i I pretty much know all of my psychological issues and where they stand. Um, I uh, did uh, have uh, my son was born a year before we started this process. And certainly watching him 
uh, and knowing all of the early signs uh, of autism definitely made me watch a little more carefully right. and get a little concerned with some things. Um, but a funny story that kind of goes along with that is that Sam Gross, who's the young man who performs I Direct Myself, the show right before ours, was in a rehearsal. He's an intern at Seven Stages and has been for years, and he got involved in this in this process. And I remember early on uh, being in a rehearsal with Del Hamilton, our founder, working with, with Sam on some acting scene. And Del got very flustered and upset and was just acting a little erratically. And Sam turned to me and said, oh, Del's just feeling a little autistic right now. <laughs> wow. And that, artistic. that <laughs> statement has stuck with me because... I don't mean to diminish anything about people on the autistic spectrum when I say we're all on the spectrum right. mm -hmm. because we're not all dealing with what people who are autistic are dealing with. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things psychologically that we all deal with that are very similar to what like just in terms of having difficult time communicating sometimes mm -hmm. or being antisocial or being unable to understand what someone else is feeling. And I tried to make the, the production echo in that way so we can all understand what's going on. It's just to such a greater degree. It sounds like uh, the responses are all common to everyone. It's just the frequency that you have those responses, or the the frequency and the your inability, the heaviness to have of other it. responses, the maybe. heaviness of it, the size yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and on the spectrum has uh, become an idiom that's mm -hmm. you know entered into our language in a, a way that's uh, much more ubiquitous than it was not five years ago. Mm -hmm. And now, I think it's interesting the way that use of the language uh, has is changed. And I'm sure now it's uh, unfortunately not used correctly and um, probably um, used as a slur. I mean, certainly I think there's power in the way that this play helps to educate people. And hopefully people will look into their use of that idiom in the future. You are listening to a selection of Best Of segments from Shannon M. Turner on the North Avenue Lounge. It's very interesting. We live in a very interactive world now uh, with social media, uh, with your TV, with your on-demand, your Netflix and all that stuff. You can choose what you want to do. You can choose the entertainment experience that you have. And even when you're just sitting at home watching TV, you can tweet and you can interact with people and you can have those conversations. And that's something that we at Seven Stages are trying to really get audiences to do is to interact because theater should never really be just a passive experience. You should never really just go into a theater and sit there and go, well, that was a lovely show because then we're not doing our jobs as, as artists. Uh, you, you really should feel something. And I think the best way for you to feel something is to be involved and is to get up and, and to do something. Uh, so we really wanted to, to create an experience. The, that is in your face, that's 4D. We, we're taking away the fourth wall and we're making it about you, the audience member. Um, and that's a way to get people involved in, and out of their, out of their heads and, and into their world. Fantastic. So Seven Stages is sharing space with a new neighbor these days. Yes. Dad's garage yes. is in your space. It's come kind of convenient that you guys are out of your space at the moment. <laughs> it actually, it really worked out well. No, um, that was not planned. That, that was way. not planned at all. To... We uh, It was a happy coincidence when they um, unfortunately lost their space and they were looking for somewhere to, to come. And we said, well, we, we've got a space. We've got some time available in our space since we'll be at, at the goat farm. And that's also been sort of an interesting challenge, too, is 
you know, with dads being such a, a name in Atlanta and us having having that history. So bringing those two forces in the same space together and trying to make sure that people know dads is still open, dads is still performing, Seven Stages is still open, Seven Stages is performing, but now we've moved into the same space. So it's, you know, this young, hot 18-year-old moving in with a 35-year-old. We're calling it our little rom-com raid May December romance. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> On a daily basis, I imagine it is quite interesting, though. How are you guys working around all that? We love it. That's we great. love having them there. They uh, they bring so much energy and so much, so many new ideas to uh, to how to do theater, how to market theater, um, and how to talk to their audiences. And so we've been learning a lot from them, and they've been learning a lot from us. And just being able to share resources and information and all that stuff has been incredibly invaluable. And both Heidi and I are really good friends with Kevin Gillies, the artistic director. And so it's just like having buddies around, having buddies staying on the couch for a while. (laughs) So how long do you anticipate your romance will continue? There's really no telling. They'll they'll be here through the end of the year uh, on paper. Uh, I imagine they will be here at least another year. Um, But they're still in the process of trying to figure out where they want to go from here. Do they want to build up a whole new space? Do they want to find another space? Do they want to stay with us? Um, So those are a lot of questions that we don't have the answers to. But at least at the moment, it's working very well for the two of us to Mm -hmm. share the space. So we'll we'll love them while they're there. Fantastic. So um, at this time, I'd love to just kind of open this up a little bit more to open discussion. And um, just want to hear from everyone, what are you most proud of with this production? What do you, when you, when you talk to people on the street, other than, of course, the 60-second elevator speech, like, what do you get most excited about talking about? For me, it's the audience interaction. And now that we've finally got audiences, uh, I was talking to Owen this morning. It's it's almost as much fun to watch the audience as it is to watch the show. You know, there's not only is it active and are you running and fighting with the actors, but there are moments where you have to solve a puzzle in order for the plot to be resolved. And uh, like last night, we had a little eight year old kid solve that puzzle, and he was so happy, and everybody gave him a big cheer. I mean, it just it wasn't faked. It was it was not theatricalized. It was this kid actually solved this puzzle and found this item, uh, and the still look on his face was priceless. And seeing people, you know, exercising and running around and people were, we were, we have certain interns who are available to help uh, people who may have trouble walking around, but people were just being like, no, I don't need any help. Just, I can do it on my own, you know? So just watching that interaction, people are really just having a blast and that's the best thing for me. The running for me is definitely, I'm, I'm a big Doctor Who fan and I, mm-hmm. when I watched one of the rehearsals, I was like, this is like a Doctor Who episode. There's all this time travel and there's these crazy monsters and seriously, a lot of running. There's a whole lot of running <laughs> going on and it was, it's just so much fun and for me, the exciting thing is to be able to to tap into that kid. We have a sign up at the box office that says, may the kid and you come outside and play. Um, and I love the idea of being able to to see grown people with their kids mm-hmm. and fighting off the harsh and shaking their magno and, come on, we can do it, we can do it. And that bonding experience that happens between families has been really, really exciting. What was lovely too is that you're it's not that kind of theatrical thing where you're picked out of the audience, that terrifying thing, and sort of dragged up on stage. I mean, to do something, I mean, you flew along in a very, very easy yeah. kind of gentle, in, interacting way with, with the actors. I mean, no, but nobody's picked on. It's, yeah. it's, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Though, it's, uh, Wow. I love the way that there's absolutely no fourth wall anywhere in this production, that the action can kind of explode from the middle of the audience. A lot of times the actors are 
just interspersed inside the audience and sort of it happens there and the audience has to move around them. I do the same thing with music where I'm playing things from within the crowd and it's really funny to watch and fun to watch um audience members who are right next to you or right next to the actors suddenly go, whoa, I'm right next to it. <laughs> and everybody kind of moves in a circle away from the, from the action, and it's really cool mm-hmm. how this works. What did you expect that I would ask that I haven't asked yet? The show is running through October 13th. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. How long does it run? How long does it run? <laughs> But you know, what's a nice thing is, you, you know, you, you, when you're an author, you're so subject to what the critics do and, and, and what they say. And what's lovely about this is to see people flowing into the place every night and, you know, kind of looking for extra tickets. And just mm-hmm. that, those words sold out, you know, <laughs> magic, magic words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's, it's interesting because you do get that immediate, I mean, this is, you know, as theater people, you're used to the the applause at the end, so you kind of get that. This is even like second by second. It's that immediate audience response of, whoa, or that was such a great scene. Oh, my gosh, that music was awesome. And hearing the audience have those interactions with the cast members as they're moving to the next location has been been really great. Um, And... Seeing yeah. people walk up and saying, "Can I get a ticket?" and we're like, "Well," and there's there's a point in the, sh- in the show where the audience diverges and one goes one direction and the other goes the other direction and they have different experiences and then come back come back together again, and people saying, "You know, well, we we didn't go 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 that way. We'll come back another night and go the other way." <laughs> so yeah. it's just fantastic. Oh yeah. yeah, So it's truly choose your own adventure. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We split the audience several times in the play, mm-hmm. and there's even a few tracks that only like one or two people get to do where they get pulled over by a character and they have to go and help that character do something and then they get brought back to the group. So there's all sorts of secret tracks throughout the show. Did you did you guys read Choose Your Own Adventures books when you were little? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah I did. Yeah. Absolutely. And did you go back and read them multiple times so you could do as many different adventures as possible? Oh, yeah. I would always go to the end and, you know, Oh, you're dead, and then I was like, oh, "Man, I've got to go back and start all over again." When, when the books were published, um, Random House did, did an audio version of them, and my 17 year old daughter still listens to them going to bed at night. So, kind of, you know, I mean, and, and, cool. and then my 13 year old, he listens to them as well, but they're listening to different books at different times, and you get this kind of you know stereo of your own work. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange, but but gratifying, you know, they kind of they hold on to it. Sure. October thirteenth—that's that's a pretty short run, and if people are clamoring for tickets, like, would you consider extending it? Well, we can't extend beyond the 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 thirteenth mm. um, because of the goat farm schedule. You know, they book up like crazy over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are considering if if things sell out, perhaps adding a few more dates within the run. So mm. keep an eye out on our website, and you'll see if we add some more shows. But currently, we are swiftly approaching sold out status, so people should yeah. grab their tickets now if they want to come. Exactly, and if uh, people like we said, people who have seen the show, they can come back and see it again, and and do the other track and see what what the rest of the story is like. So we're encouraging people to see it multiple times because there's so much that you can miss the first time around with all the running and all the moving around. So Mm -hmm. we really want to encourage people. And you get a 35% discount if you come back. 35% discount if you come back. That's great. Not quite a free refill, but almost. (laughs) (laughs) But just something uh, that, uh, you know, having, I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to go and see two previews and then go see the opening tonight. And how is that going to go? I'd say the first night I kind of watched how everything was set up and what scene was seen. Second night I was watching the story, and actually what I wanted to do tonight is listen to the music. <laughs> 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 because, you know, I had to absorb myself in that. And also, 
watching the audience. I think that, that, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Last night I got a little bit of that, just watching the faces and how they react to the various scenes. And it's wonderful to watch the um, the, the kind of uncertainty when they first come in and the first first early scenes and how suddenly they just they, they pick up on the thing. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. when they're given something to do, when they're given the magno, and all of a sudden they're in. That's when they're really like, that's, that's, yeah. that's handed a prop and told to go and do something with it. That's uh-huh. when they really kick into gear and they realize, mm-hmm. oh, well, we've got to do things. We've got to protect this person or fight these monsters mm-hmm. in certain ways. And we give them little tutorials on how to use their weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get really uh, invested in the show and they really want to win. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to win. Mm-hmm. So. I know something I'd like to go back to, actually, Owen. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the relationship between Owen and Katie, because Owen is this young man, young adult, and he has a sort of budding um, crush on his fellow uh, character. Can you talk about the, how that sort of drives the energy of the story and what you think about young love and how that sort of plays into the story of our lives? Um young love yeah being sort of a father of a 17 year old daughter and a kind of a 13 year old boy is kind of you know young love reach with a shotgun <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay in fantasy but it's okay in fantasy yeah but well, actually what I, what I like about it in the story is that that, that it's there that the reader knows it's there they don't know it's there <laughs> really you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it, 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 they're, they're just stepping over the threshold from, from childhood in, in, into adolescence and they don't know, and I think the, the people around them know that it's there, and they they have a, you know, figures like Mary White um, in in particular, and in, in Katie's father, uh, the subcommandant Hudson, you, you have a feeling of somebody who's kind of sort of mentoring that and being being aware of it and and allowing it to develop, uh, and you know, so, and, you know, there's a great character Pieta, who is, when you kind of first meet her, is is kind of. Angry and semi psycho. I say just related to she's based on she's based on my younger brother who was a kind of a psycho kid and has developed into a very caring, stern, funny adult. And that's I think what Pieta is, isn't she? You know, she's she, she, she's a fighter and she's feisty, but uh, but but underneath there's a deep load of of mothering and caring in it. Yeah. So you know, there's, there's all of these kind of things are going on between between Katie and the one. I was looking at a couple of cast members that I not named the, the other day and kind of watching the way they were talking going, yeah, you know, <laughs> that, there, that, huh? that might go somewhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen that too. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that because that's the way we, we really worked yeah. those scenes was I, I said, don't get romantic. You know, you don't really know what, uh, not that you don't know what love is, but you're not like drawn sexually to one another, you know, and you're not like lusting after one another they're your kids and so it's more like the friendship yeah but like, there's something underneath it that you don't even really understand that you're this bond that is growing yeah, is something special but you've really um you set that in a really nice way and that there's this time especially where the two characters sort of run up to each other and they're really excited to see each other but they stop in the middle of, and they don't want to show how excited they are to see each other yeah. and it's just one of those classic mm-hmm. moments and i i got so tickled watching it, it was very cleverly done it really is classic and in the book too the way that they fight when they first meet they're really they're two tough characters so when they first meet each other it's like button heads and that helps them develop that bond because they both realize that they're they're strong people well you know in in one of the the later books another character another girl character Ruthie 
and Katie's a tomboy and, and Rosie's much more kind of feminine and, and uh, you know and, and you get sort of Katie kind of looking at her going oh yeah <laughs> 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 you're on my patch now <laughs>